So Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood, through faith, to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that He might be just, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Last week we spoke on this issue of propitiation, and we said that it means to placate wrath or to satisfy anger or justice. We discussed the pagan idea of propitiation, which is the word as it was read and as it was understood by the Roman in that day would have been to understand it in reference to the way in which they would approach their own pagan gods. And the pagan idea, the reason that you needed propitiation was that you had to propitiate or placate the anger of a god who had entered into a foul mood. He was in a bad sort of way, in a bad mood. He was a petulant God, and he wanted to or he had to be placated by individuals that for whatever reason he was abusing or placing curses upon, and they could placate him by doing what was necessary to change his mood, to give him the gift that he craved, the thing that would satisfy him, something that would displace his anger or turn his attention away from his focus, his focused anger upon them. In Christianity, God is propitiated not because God is in a foul mood, not because God is tempestuous, not because God is petulant, but God is to be propitiated because He has a consistent, just anger against evil. The key word there is just anger. God is a just and righteous God, and His animosity is set against all injustice and all unrighteousness. These things are like a cancer that threatened to bring destruction and death upon God's creation. And so it works up God's animosity. We would know that as a father or as a parent that if someone were to come and invade your home and seek to bring destructive ideas or concepts or behavior to your children that you knew would ruin their lives, you should have an anger that rises up within you. You should have a just resistance against those things. And it would be, in this sense, righteous. This is what God is expressing. A just anger at what he thinks is and what he knows, what God knows. We might be angry at what we think is destructive for our kids, but God is angry at what he knows is destructive to his people and to his creation. The pagan idea also requires that the individual be the one to placate that God. The individual can placate that God by bringing whatever that God wants. But it's on the individual's shoulders to provide and think of what it is, what's the gift, what's the offering that he can find, that he can develop, that he will bring to that God that will somehow placate and turn away the anger of that God. In Christianity, the individual cannot placate the anger of God against sin. The individual has nothing to offer that would turn God's just opposition and anger away from their sin. We are all in righteousness, we sing in our hymns. We understand that all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. There's no gift or no offering that we can bring that would satisfy God out of our own selves. But in Christianity, what God does is He provides the gift Himself. 
He makes available the sacrifice that we bring. He knows we're not fit, we're not able, we cannot come in our unrighteousness and do or provide the obedience or the activity that would placate his anger. So God does it himself. God provides the sacrifice. God provides the means. God gives the gift. God sends his son to live a perfect and sinless life in perfect righteousness and utter sinlessness. Then take himself as the offering that he brings and offers up to God for our forgiveness and to satisfy the just anger of God against sin. And again, in the pagan idea, the God has a gift that he demands that will satisfy him. That gift might be a plate of food. That's what it is on the island of Bali. I spoke about this last week. It, it may be blood that's poured out to a, as an offering. And I shared as well a story to, to you from India and my friend Mohan and how in his village there was a God named Polarama and that God would periodically demand blood and the people would go around and decide what sacrifice that would mean and they would take it to the roots of a banyan tree and they'd pour the blood out upon the banyan tree and hope that that would placate the anger of Polarama. And other places, what the God might demand, and this is actually quite inventive by the priest of the temple, but he might demand a certain amount of gold to be brought into the temple and laid at his feet. And that's what would placate his anger. But in Christianity, God provides that offering, as we said. God provides the sacrifice that will satisfy and provide for and complete his satisfaction, his just anger against sin, against our sins. And so God comes to earth. God the Son gives his life and death to satisfy the just sentence against our sins. Take your Bibles for a moment and go to Acts chapter 20, verse 28. I'm going to read to you what I think is one of the most wonderful verses that you can read in Scripture. And when I say wonderful, I mean it's not something you can entirely grasp. You just sit and wonder over it. You sit in awe over it. It's not something that you can penetrate. And it's the type of thing that people want to figure out. Maybe there's a different way to write this or a different way to say this so that this will make more sense. But in Acts 20, 28, Paul is meeting with the elders in Ephesus and he's getting ready to leave them and he's giving them instructions on how they're to care for the body, the church of Jesus Christ. He says, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, here's the line, which he purchased with his own blood. Just let your mind settle on that. Now some individuals say, well, this, this has to be changed a little bit. So this word, his own blood, may be a phrase speaking of a dear relationship. So it would be with the blood of his own. And that would refer to Jesus Christ, with the blood of his own. It's not God's blood, it's the blood of his own. It's the blood of his son. And, and actually, that's a fair reading. And that's a proper reading, I think. But then you come across Romans chapter 9, verse 5, where Paul is also speaking. And he speaks of Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And you're back to the same challenge in the same situation. God has come. God has entered into human form. God has become a man and lived among us sinless and perfect. And however you sort that out, God has then given himself sacrifice and punishment for our sins. It's awesome. It's hard to get our minds around. God himself, in the place of ourselves, to rescue ourselves from himself, gives himself. And dies for us in our place. As John Stott puts it, God himself gave himself to save us from himself. This is the doctrine of propitiation that we talked about last week. 
And it's a doctrine that exalts the love of God, the supreme love of God, without in any way diminishing or lessening the justice of God and the holiness of God. And it's a, a wonderful truth that we hold on to. Now, there are those who want to counteract that. And what I want to start out this morning is just talk about this a little bit. And I want to share with you some ideas. And there are things that we need to know because there are other ideas that you're going to come into. If you're in your car at any time and you're listening to the radio, you hear all kinds of different people preaching and teaching. If you're picking up different books and you're reading different books that are popular and become really popular, those ideas are filtered through different lenses. So there are some things as you do that to be discerning. You need to understand that there are a significant number of individuals who do not like the idea that God needs to be propitiated. In Romans chapter 3, verse 25, what we understand is the propitiation refers to God as the object, and it's God's anger, and it's God's just animosity against sin that must be set down. But other individuals will take it and say, no, it's actually the object is not God, it's us and it's our sins. And what God wants to do is he just wants to remove our sins. And he's just addressing us because God is all love and he doesn't have anger. And, well... We talked about this a bit last week, but we're going to talk about it a little bit more this week to explain and understand why we still hold to the idea that this word propitiation is the right understanding of this word that we're reading here. It's pointed out by individuals in our passage, this word hilasterion, which is the Greek word that has been translated here, propitiation. In the Septuagint, the Septuagint is, is the Greek version of the Old Testament. They point out that in the Septuagint, Whenever the definite article is put before this word hilasterion, the word isn't propitiation, the word is mercy seat, and it's actually describing a piece of furniture that's in the temple where the people of Israel worshipped. It's referring to, in the most holy place you had the Ark of the Covenant, and then over the Ark of the Covenant were these cherubim whose wings touched, and inside the Ark of the Covenant was the law that God gave to Moses, the Ten Commandments, and then covering the Ark, uh, the lid upon it, this lid was called the mercy seat. And that's what they're saying is being referred to here is the mercy seat. And you'll find in some of your translations, or if you go and you compare different translations on some website on the internet, you'll see that mercy seat is oftentimes the translation. And actually, this is how Luther understood it. This is how Calvin understood it. It meant mercy seat. And so that's what they inserted there. Yet those two individuals were not trying to bypass the notion of propitiation, but most of those who favor this idea of this translation, that hilasterion just means the mercy seat, do so because they want, to, they want to put aside this idea that God's anger needs to be propitiated for our sins, that God's anger needs to be placated for our sins. And they, so they say, this means the mercy seat. Now, the mercy seat, as I said, covered the ark in which the law of God was represented. You know, the people of Israel disobeyed that law on periodic basis. And whenever they disobeyed that law and they became aware of it, they were commanded to come to the temple and to offer a sin offering and make sacrifices. They were called upon to enter at the gate and where that sacrifice was made, they were to lay their hands upon the sacrifice, recognizing that sacrifice was dying in their place. That sacrifice was put on the brazen altar that was burning and the coals were soaked with the blood of that sacrifice then they were to take some of the coals off of that brazen altar and they brought that into what was called the holy place. There they met before a veil. On the other side of the veil was the most holy place where the ark was and where the mercy seat was covering the ark. And there the priests would make prayers on the behalf of the people. But this wasn't enough. So once a year, a sacrifice was made for all of the nation of Israel and all the people who had gathered throughout the year and worship around the temple. And all of those prayers and all of those sacrifices, in a sense, were all convened into one sacrifice that was made at that time on the Day of Atonement. 
And then the high priest would take the sacrifice that was made and he would take the blood of the sacrifice and he would enter in not just into the holy place but into the most holy place once a year. And there in the most holy place over the mercy seat he would pour out some of that blood upon the mercy seat. The blood that was shed at the brazen altar. And then after he poured out the blood upon the mercy seat he would intercede for the people and he would pray that God would take away their sins that God would recognize all the offerings they had made throughout the year and God would remove their sins from them or that God would atone for their sins or in other words, the idea is that God would cover their sins. Now this is kind of technical, but this idea of taking away sins, atoning for sins, covering sins is not the same idea as propitiation. It's not the same idea as propitiation. Instead, that's the idea of expiation. Expiation means to cover or take away or remove. You'll actually find that in some of our translations, I think it's in the Revised Standard Version, they will translate this word that we have propitiation in our verse here as expiation. Ah, this comes from the mercy seat. You see, you put the blood on the mercy seat and you pray, God atone, God remove, expiate, take away these sins. And so the argument then comes back, this verse doesn't mean propitiation. This verse and this word, hilasterion, means expiation. It's just praying that God would take away sins, that God would remove the guilt, that God would cover it. And the focus is not on God's judgment or God's wrath, but it's just focused on God removing our sins from us. I'm going to give you some answers for this. Here's a few of the things that you need to take into account that this idea, this notion, fails to take into account, I should say. And it's this. One, it doesn't take into account the context of Romans 3, verse 25. And we talked about this last week. By the time you come to Romans 3, verse 25, Paul has been spending two and a half chapters identifying sin, sin among the idolatrous pagans, sin among the moralizing Greeks, sin among the religious Jews, and that in every case they reveal that, as Paul starts out, the wrath of God is being revealed against all manner of ungodliness and unrighteousness. You find that in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. So Paul is building a case that God's wrath and God's judgment is being poured out. And Paul will repeat this notion of wrath and judgment throughout these two and a half chapters until he comes to the very end of basically Romans chapter 3, verse 19. And there he makes the declaration as a result of all this, the accumulation and the presentation of all of our guilt and all of our sin. We're all guilty before God. We're all facing his just judgment. And then he says in verse 25, that God has provided a propitiation. God has provided a way to remove this righteous wrath and this righteous judgment. Those who just want to argue this, just taking away our sins because God is not really angry at our sins. That's some notion that belongs into some pagan past. Don't take into account the context in which Paul is speaking. The next thing is they fail to take into account that Paul is writing to Gentiles for the most part. And these are individuals who know nothing of the technical features of Judaism and their worship in the temple. And for these Gentiles, the common, in fact, the only usage for the idea of this word hilasterion is to propitiate or placate an angry God. And, and in this passage, by the way, the definite article is not used. It's not like it's in the Septuagint. Whenever the definite article is used, the, it always meant the mercy seat. But the definite article is not there. It's just a word that stands for a propitiation for an angry God. And so that's how they would have understood it. Again, those making this argument that this is really about expiation, just taking our sins away, fail to understand that even in the Septuagint, that's that version of the Old Testament that was written in the Greek, and in the writings of the Jewish community 
like Josephus during the time in which Paul was writing, and even in other places in the New Testament, this word or words that share basically common roots are very often used, most often used to mean placate or to propitiate wrath. So you have an example in Genesis chapter 32, you have Jacob who's going back to visit his brother Esau. He's a little concerned because the last time he was near Esau, he was running from him because Esau had sworn that he was going to kill him. And now Jacob has made his own life and he's bringing his family back. And we're told that Jacob sends gifts to Esau in order to, Hilasterion, in order to propitiate his brother's anger. So his brother would not be angry at him anymore. In Numbers chapter 16, you have an account where the people of Israel have sinned against God and God is bringing judgment and disease and death upon the people. Moses and Aaron make an offering before the door of the tabernacle in order to placate the wrath of God against the people. And that's the way the word is used in that context. And I could give you some examples of this in the New Testament as well. And so it's not as though the word only and always means mercy seat in which through a process of thinking about it can be extrapolated to mean expiation. But let's go back to that Day of Atonement for a moment. Let's go back to the Day of Atonement when the priest does take the blood that's been sacrificed and brings it into the most holy place and he pours that blood out upon the mercy seat and there he prays that God would take away the guilt of the people, that God would expiate or there would be expiation which their guilt would be removed and there would be an atonement made for the guilt of their sin. And just remember this, that before the guilt of that sin could be removed, it had to be paid for. This priest still had to lay his hand upon the sacrifice representing all the nation of Israel, doing what all the individuals of Israel had done throughout the year, putting their hand on the various sacrifices they brought. And the sacrifice in their place for their sins still had to be put to death and then laid upon the brazen altar. And then the blood corrected and much of the blood poured at the base of the brazen altar and the rest of the blood brought in and sprinkled upon the mercy seat. In other words, propitiation had to take place. God's just anger against sin had to be met before a cry could say, oh God now, remove the guilt and the claim of the sin against them because the payment's been made. God, expiate, remove, atone the sin because you've been propitiated. Your righteous judgment and wrath has been propitiated. That's what had to happen. These are not in contrast to one another. They don't go against one another. They complement one another and they're best understood together and so there is propitiation the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, in which God's anger is satisfied, there is also expiation. Because God's justice is met, where my guilt and my sin can be removed and I can be forgiven. Just so you know, and you know this in a practical experience, forgiveness costs all of us. You forgive somebody, you only forgive them at the cost of what it is you forgive them at. Right? If you forgive a person of some large amount of money that they owe you, you will discover that you do not have that money in your wallet anymore. It's gone. You forgave them of all of that money. And uh, I don't know about you, but sometimes that's rather painful because you needed that money, but you forgave them, and you take the loss. You take the payment. That's how forgiveness works. And as a result, you can't go back to them and say, I want you to pay that to me. It's gone. It's removed from them. But it was removed from you first. Something was satisfied and answered, and God's justice is dealt with first. Satisfaction of God's justice is dealt with first. It's paid for, and as a result, he extends, and he gives to us on our side forgiveness. That's why Dr. David Wells says this. I think it's a wonderful quote. 
God is propitiated and sin is expiated. And Dr. David Wells describes it this way. God can now look on man without displeasure. And man can now look on God without fear. God is propitiated. He can look on me and take pleasure in me. My sin is removed. My guilt is removed and it's taken away and it's covered. And now I can come before God with no fear of reprisal, but only to enjoy him. Now this brings to us a question that we need to try to answer here. The real question is, what part does blood play in this transaction? Because our passage says it is a propitiation through his blood. Why was blood necessary to propitiate the wrath of God and to expiate or take away the guilt of my sins? Why is it that blood is called for? And in this verse, we see that it's faith in the blood of Jesus Christ that appropriates for a person or gains for a person the satisfaction of God's wrath against our sins. The blood also, and faith in that blood, that allows God to justly justify the sinner or to righteously make righteous the unrighteous. That is to be propitiated. It's blood that satisfies God's justice, but that blood also works to expiate or remove the sin. And so we've sang about this in many of the songs we sang this morning. Most of the songs, by the way, in the hymn book that you sing about the blood of Jesus Christ are really singing about its expiatory effect, its ability to cover us and cleanse us and watch us. So in 1 John 1, 7, on this idea of removing sin, we are told that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. It satisfies and propitiates God, and it cleanses us. And the question is, why? Why is it the blood is an answer to these things? And by the way, I don't know. We come to church all the time. We're used to singing these songs. And if you've grown up in a church community, you've heard these songs put in. There was a time in the 80s when people tried to think, you know, this doesn't really work really well. We're trying to attract as many people as possible. And you'll find, if you go back and find some of the songs that were written in the 80s, the criticism of the songs of the church in the 80s is that they were bloodless. They just took away all references to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our sins and they were just all praise and good times and kind of Pollyannish songs in which we sang about how happy we were that God loved us so much. The history of the church is we sing these songs about the blood of Jesus Christ and we sing them without even actually, you know, thinking that it sounds odd, but to a modern person who steps in who's never heard this stuff, this is strange, Right? They didn't grow up on a farm where they saw that life basically was sustained by the shedding of the blood. You know, hospitals have removed us from the way in which blood plays a feature in the work in sustaining life. And we don't see those things. We have somewhat of an antiseptic life where we don't see all that stuff. But the generation that received these words and understood these things didn't have a problem grasping the understanding of the significance and importance of blood providing for God to be propitiated and us to find life and freedom before God. They understood that because the whole testament of the temple and the sacrifices that are made of the temple, and of course we read this just in Second Chronicles chapter 35 and we saw this Passover feast that took place in which thousands of sacrifices were made in one day. Think of the blood that was flowing. It wouldn't have been difficult for them to associate that with one another. So we're going to sing a song at the end of our service. Think about this. I had a fellow tell me this when I was in seminary that he can't sing the song because it's too awful a song, but it doesn't bother me. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. It's kind of a gruesome picture. We're going to sing it anyhow because it's a wonderful truth behind it, that God has given his life. So what does all this mean? What's the purpose of this? Why were bloody sacrifices offered in the temple from sun? rise to sundown. Well, we're going to talk about these things. I'm going to give you an answer for why blood. And, and to do this, 
for a moment, I, I kind of want to go back and consider an extra biblical example of this. The kind of set for you an understanding that would have basically been settled over the world by the time we have the scriptures written before us. It would have been an understanding that informed the classic Romans. It would have been an understanding that would have informed Abraham and Moses when he wrote this text. The prophets who wrote, the apostles who spoke, they all would have been steeped in a sense in an understanding of these rituals. And it's the ritual of blood covenants. And if you were to go back into any society and trace it back to its origin and to its ancestry, you would find it in the ancestry of any society, it is rich with this notion that covenants that individuals made to one another were made on the basis of blood. So if an individual, in a sense, wanted to come before people and he wanted to attest to some truth, or he wanted to tell them some grand bit of information they needed to know, and there was a question as to his veracity, he would take Lancet and he would cut his forearm and he would raise his arm to heaven. And as the blood flowed down from his arm, he would tell them his truth. And he'd make his profession. The blood flowing down his arm said, look, I'm staking my life on it because that's really what the blood meant. The life was in the blood. May my life be poured out. May my life be forfeited if I am not telling you what is true. So that's what he's doing. That's what he's making. That's the pledge he's making. And this is the same whenever they made covenants with one another. When they came to make covenants with one another where they came upon agreements, they made the covenant around the shedding of blood. It might be the shedding of their own blood. It might be also that they would take a sacrifice. They would sacrifice the animal that would represent themselves. Should they break this covenant with one another, may they be treated like the sacrifice that they're making. They would actually lay out the sacrifice after they put the animal to death and they would cut it into pieces and then they would, together would walk through the pieces of the sacrifice they made and basically were saying, look, my life be treated like this. If I don't keep my bond, if I don't keep my pledge, if I don't keep my promise to you. And the interesting thing is you can go back into every society and you could find this idea of bonding together in promise based upon the oath of blood, based upon the pledge of life. We actually say things like, I'd stake my life on it. We say, scouts honor. We raise our fingers up like this. Or we say, cross my heart and hope to die. We say, so help me God, as we put our hands upon our Bible and we raise our hands in oath. And when we raise our hands in oath, we're drawing back to that ancient ritual. We wear probably wedding bands for that reason as well. Because oftentimes... And receiving the oath and making these oaths, there was the piercing of the body through a ring that was put in their ear and their nose, and it was an expression, it was the blood that was shed. It wasn't the ornament that remained. The ornament remained to give testament to the covenant that was made, the issuing forward or the promising and putting a person's life upon that thing. We make oaths of loyalty with our hands upon our hearts or something like that, and we make our oaths before flags that have the color of red flowing through them, which represents the blood that was shed for that nation or for those people. And we're really, we're beckoning back to these things. For us, they may be just matters of speech and they may be just customs and traditions, but in the ancient days, they were a pledge that a person had pledged their life to be forfeit if they broke their vow or their covenant. Now go back to the Garden of Eden where God made Adam. And there we learn that God had an agreement with Adam, that Adam could enjoy all of his creation and benefit from all the fruit of his creation in the garden that God set him but there was one tree in the covenant or agreement God made with him that he was not to eat of, and it was the tree of the fruit of knowledge of good and evil. And on that covenant, Adam staked his life. 
God said to Adam, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Right? This is your pledge. This is your covenant. This is your vow. But Adam sinned. He disobeyed God. He broke that agreement with the Creator. And since that day, Adam and all of his children have lived under a curse of death, both physically and spiritually. Man, you see, is a race of covenant breakers, lawbreakers. There was another covenant God made with the people of Israel where he gave them a law that they were following. He put that law in the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place, and that Ark of the Covenant, that law there, bore witness against their sins. That's actually why there had to be a sacrifice made. That's why there had to be blood poured out upon the lid of that mercy seat. It would say, oh, let the blood come between us and the law that we've broken and the covenants that we've broken. That's what they were saying. It all beckons back to this idea. Such is the human race. Because of our sins, our lives are forfeit before God. This might not make sense to you, but this made perfect sense in those ancient civilizations, in those ancient places. They knew that there could be no progress in the future. There could be nothing built that they could build together unless their life was staked upon the promises and the covenants they made to one another. And their life was forfeit if they broke those covenants. To them, the truth was self-evident. Our sins separate us from God. They bring upon us the cost of our own lives because we've sinned against Him and broken the promise of that life with Him. That's why Paul says in Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. Death, decay, disease, because we've betrayed the pledge of blood. We've turned away from God. Now, the only thing that can satisfy a broken covenant or the pledge of blood is the blood or the life of the individual who broke the covenant. It's the only way. The person had to be brought before the people, and they have to fulfill the vow, and the fulfillment of the vow that they broke was their own life in forfeit for what they'd done. That's what blood represents. The blood doesn't just resent life. It's life laid down. It's life poured out. It's death. When you read in the New Testament that God redeems us with blood or that we are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, we're supposed to recollect and know what it's telling us is Jesus died in our place. He poured his life out for us. God becomes a man. God steps into the place of the covenant breakers, having kept the covenant perfectly himself as the Son of God, in every way perfectly meeting all the demands and all the laws and all the requirements of the promise and the covenant that God and man have entered into. And Jesus, Jesus keeps it perfectly in our place. And then having fulfilled it perfectly, he goes and dies in our place and lays himself down as a payment for the price of our broken vows to God. And so the answer to why blood is simply this, fulfillment. Jesus' blood shed for us fulfills the requirement of the broken covenant. He fulfills in our place our broken promises. And so he dies for us. And that's what's being put before us in this whole idea, this whole idea of the propitiation by his blood in Romans 2.25. Let me in conclusion give you one other brief ritual that actually precedes and is older and more prevalent in all the ancient different societies than the blood covenant, and it's the blood brotherhood. Do you remember this, the idea of the blood brotherhood? If you watch westerns when you were a little kid, right, and uh, you know you always saw the cowboy and the chief that would meet one another, and the guy would pull out his knife, and he'd pull it across his palms, and they'd shake hands with one another, and they were blood brothers as a result. I remember, well, this was very impressive to me, and I remember as a boy, 
on Pennsylvania Avenue that there were four of us actually that had a tree fort and we decided that we were going to start a little club in the tree fort and then we were going to become blood brothers. Well, we didn't have the guts to draw a knife across our palms, but we did have a safety pin. And slowly we worked at just getting enough blood out of our thumbs, you know, just a little bit of a drop that we could touch each one of our thumbs so we were bound together in our bond to one another. Actually, it's actually the most ancient of rituals. They would pour out their blood as a sign that they were bonding themselves together and then grab one of his hands as a sign that they were bonding themselves together in a unified life. They shared life with one another, the intermingling of their lives together that they were bound to one another and unified to one another. And there are other ways in which it took expression. Sometimes they would take a little bit of their blood and they would drop it into cups of wine and they would drink it together. And that was an expression of their unity to one another. Or again, they would sacrifice an animal and as they were sacrificing the animal, the two that were being bound together before the society would write out their pledges to one another and what they were pledging to do for one another and what they were giving to one another. And they would also then write out whatever curses should come upon them should they not follow it. And then after that, the sacrifice of the animal was sprinkled upon their pledge. And then when they'd take their promises and they'd bind it up, each one, and they'd put it into some ornamental package that they would wear around their neck as a sign that they were pledged to one another and bonded to one another in this kind of blood friendship where they gave themselves. So when you come and read the scriptures and you see that, that the nation of Israel, for example, when they pledged themselves to be God's people alone, the men were circumcised in order to show that they were pledging themselves through the shedding of blood and unity with God and, and binding themselves to God. Or when they made out their pledges to follow Him and obey Him, that they would write out the law. And then after the law was written, they would sprinkle the law with blood that was shed. Or they would take the law and they would bind it up and they'd put it as ornaments on their foreheads. When the Lord Jesus, in the upper room, has the last supper with his disciples, and he presents the cup and says, this cup is my blood, a testament of the new covenant given for you, and this bread represents my body shed for you. And then right after they had the meal together, it says he sat down with them, and he says, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. I call you friends. The answer to this ancient ritual why blood? The first one was fulfillment, keeping the law and the measure of the law against all sin. But the second one was fellowship and friendship. Binding together in one, unifying together in one through the offering that was made. Jesus gave his life, shed his life out in order that in him we might have fellowship with him and with one another. You can read about that in First John, first verses of 1 John chapter 1. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins and we have fellowship with one another and truly our fellowship is with God and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Tis mystery. All that God gives Himself this way. It's the blood of Christ and death and sacrifice that fulfills the demand of my sin and my broken promises to God. It's the blood of Christ and His life laid down and then taken up in resurrection power that then binds me by faith into an everlasting friendship with God. In this friendship... I am made to share in and be brought into unity with the divine life of God. All throughout history, that's what these rituals type. All throughout history, we have revealed to us an instinct or a desire or a craving that's deeply resonating in the heart of men. They know they need to be made right. They know their sin and that that sin has to be paid for. They know that there has to be a way to have a sure bonding together and covenant and promise with one another. They know it. They don't want to live as aliens and they know their sin puts them on that trajectory and 
They also long and desire for friendship that's deep and lasting and profound. A loyalty that is oftentimes not reflected in their communities. But all these things are expressed in these strange and odd little rituals that they develop. But they reveal an impulse that was in the heart of man, that was put in the heart of man by God himself in order to direct men into God himself, into himself, as the answer for their sins, as the person who would meet them in his sacrifice, forgive them, bind them to himself in friendship. This mystery all, the immortal dies who can explore this strange design. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, what do we learn from this? There's no way of approaching you and coming into relationship with you that salvages our reputation. No proprietary way that looks unoffensive, that fits and leaves our notions of ourselves, our civil selves intact. The way to you is a bloody way. The way to you is a way that exposes our sin and its ugliness and its cost. The way to you is when we recognize you've taken that cost upon yourself. You've taken the violence and the vulgarity of our sin and bore it in our place out of love for us. We deserve these things. This is where we should go, but where you've gone for us. Oh, what a wonderful Savior you are. What a wonderful Savior you are. A church purchased by his own blood, the blood of his own, given in death for us that we might know life. We praise you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.